Unfortunately, Earth is not climate controlled. It has no AC or heater. So we've reached the record high of 136 degrees Fahrenheit, 57 Celsius, in the Libyan desert, and a record low of a negative 126 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 87 degrees Celsius, in Antarctica. Yet despite this, life has found different ways to survive these temperatures and everything in between. But each way has their own cost. Welcome to Podcast Wild. I'm your host, MK, and we'll be covering just about anything to do with outdoor sciences. Today, we're delving into our first multi-part episode. In three episodes, we'll be able to understand the when, why, and how mammals might have evolved. But it's necessary to lay some groundwork, which is why, in today's episode, Some Like It Hot, we'll cover thermal regulation, and understanding the differences between endotherms and ectotherms. We all know the dangers of hypothermia and heat stroke. We know that when it gets too hot or too cold, we don't work as well and we may even die. Without getting into too much detail, when our body gets too cold, we risk ice crystals forming in the body. Our proteins and enzymes also need the right temperature range or they lose their shape and structure. This is called denaturing, and if something denatures fully, it can't work at all. This can be seen at high and low temperatures. An example of thermal or heat denaturing is when you fry an egg. The proteins and amino acids unravel, which is why the egg changes color and texture. Because proteins and enzymes work best at certain ranges, animals try to maintain their internal temperature in that range. There are two approaches to this in the animal kingdom to control that internal temperature. They are endothermy and ectothermy. Birds and mammals are endotherms, while fish, amphibians, reptiles, and invertebrates are ectotherms. So what makes something an endotherm? Well, most of their heat is generated internally through metabolic processes. Your metabolism is a result of the chemical reactions inside your cells. Ectotherms rely more on external temperatures to keep them warm or cool. Now, just because an animal is an endotherm doesn't mean they are inherently warmer than a similar size ectotherm. For example, a lizard running around produces more energy than a same-sized mouse at rest, despite the lizard being an ectotherm. 
and animals that are endotherms can have varying internal temperatures, meaning that a constant internal temperature isn't part of the endotherm definition. Animals that have a constant internal temperature are called homeotherms. Most endotherms are homeotherms, but some ectotherms are homeotherms too. Tropical fish are a great example of this because the locations they live in don't have much in the way of seasonal variation and because of water's high specific heat capacity. It takes more energy to raise the temperature of one gram of water one degree than anything on land. For comparison, it takes 4.184 joules for water to raise that one gram one degree. For comparison, it takes 4.184 joules of energy to raise that one gram of water one degree, while copper only needs 0.385 joules. This shows why water temperature usually doesn't vary too drastically. The opposite of homeotherms are poikilotherms, animals with varying internal temperatures. Most ectotherms are poikilotherms, though some endotherms are too. An example of a poikiloendotherm are animals that go through hibernation or torpor, a mini-hibernation. Some hummingbirds will enter torpor for the night, lowering their metabolic rate. This reduces their energy consumption by 50 times when compared to their awake state. In fact, animals in torpor can lower their metabolic rate by as much as 95%. If these hummingbirds didn't do it this way, they would not have enough energy to make it through the night. This is also the problem behind white-nose syndrome seen in bats. Species of bat also enter hibernation, and in doing so, they lower their body temperature. This may make it easier for the white fungus to take hold of the bat. This, then, can also cause the bats to wake up from hibernation, burning through critical fat reserves, and may lead them to starve to death over the winter. Endotherms can also take advantage of their environment and can regulate themselves by burrowing underground where it is cool or migrating to warmer areas. You may have also started to guess what some of the costs of endothermia are. One is that it requires a lot of energy to maintain that metabolism. One way to put this into perspective is to look at the feed conversion ratio. This is used in agriculture to measure the amount of feed in compared to the amount of yield out, i.e. pounds or kilos of feed per pound or kilo of meat or milk. Beef ends up with a feed conversion ratio of 4.5 to 7.5, while farm-raised salmon and catfish have a ratio of 1. This is because the fish are ectotherms, and so almost all the energy is being put into growth while the cows lose some of their energy to heat. Being an endotherm means you can burn through your energy quicker, meaning you need to eat more and more often than an ectotherm. For example, an adult ball python, which can reach up to lengths of five feet, they need only to eat one rodent every once a week or even every other week. And 
from one of the fish hatcheries I worked at. Well, in the winter, it would get so cold that the fish wouldn't be fed for months, as it was impossible to feed them through the ice. Another problem is body limitations. Because of their high metabolism, endotherms can only get so small or so long. This is thought to do with surface area to volume ratio. This is how much of you is exposed to the outside versus how much of you there is total. This is the same reason in chemistry class or in baking you might be instructed to crush up an ingredient. You are increasing the surface area so that more of the agent can be exposed for the chemical processes. Smaller objects have a larger surface area to volume ratio. And for endotherms, that means that more of the body heat is leaving instead of being trapped in the body. Endotherms that are too small would lose too much energy to keep up with and would starve themselves. This is also why you don't have any endotherms stretched out as long as a snake. That shape increases the surface area to volume ratio. In fact, the most optimal shape would be a sphere. You yourself can change your surface area to volume ratio by curling up into a ball when you are cold or splaying yourself out when you're hot. Ectotherms have their drawbacks too. They are dependent on their environment and while there are species that have evolved means to adapt, they cannot thrive in some environments like their endothermic counterparts. Most ectotherms migrate or bed down for the winter while many endotherms are still out and about. They are also slow to start in the morning as they need to warm up to get moving. When they are sluggish because of cooler temperatures, they become easier targets to those fast-acting endotherms that wake up early or are even operating at night. Endothermy can be pretty energetically expensive, requiring both more food but also increased respiration to provide oxygen for that metabolism. This means that mammals and birds in their own way had to develop ways to streamline and optimize their form to support this higher metabolism. Which is what we'll be covering next week as we understand all of the mammalian traits that enable us to be our hot-blooded selves. If you're interested in examining today's episode further, I posted a link to my sources as well as a few links on surface areas at podcastwild.weebly.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-W-I-L-D dot W-E-E-B-L-Y dot com. You can also find us on Facebook as Podcast Wild. Thank you for listening. Thank you for learning. We'll talk to you next time on Podcast Wild with Episode 3B, Making of a Mammal.